0: away I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded by blue and green grass and bored years and I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from. To handle that cape for the last time.
1: Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Andy N's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken,
0: Spoken Label. Hi, it's Andy N from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning in 2016 and as of speaking as currently nearly 300 sessions the full archive is available on spoken label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable me to keep the running costs of this podcast going and enjoy Take care. Bye bye. Spoken oh. Label. Hi, guys. And the end. Spoken Label back in the house. A bit of this very special spoken label session today because this one is actually part of Scottish Book Week. And it's also going to be re released for World AIDS Day, which is on the 1st of December. Now, I'm not going to say that I hate using the word celebrate because this is not a celebration podcast. Now, I've got a fantastic writer with me. Kudos to our friend Bella Kenyon for this on Flying the Wall Press. So I've got a gentleman here, Kevin Crow, who is one of Bella's writers with a short story collection called No Home in This World. Now, this podcast is going to be quite different because instead of Kevin actually reading out one of the stories in the second half, we have a voice actor with us today, Nick Newman as well. So hello, guys. How are you both today? I'm fine. I'm fine. And how are you? Well. Good. I'm, Good. I'm well, Good to thank meeting. you, Andy. Good and to you. meet you. <laughs> I'm excellent today. I'm always excellent. Particularly on a Friday as well. So <laughs> after a long of <laughs> work. Now, obviously, I like I said, obviously, Nick, you're just here obviously to add some additional questions, really, aren't you? Of course. But the main purpose of the podcast is Kevin on his book. Now, what I always like to start things off with, Kevin, is look at the journey as a writer. So obviously I know from of your case then you want To tell people, obviously, because you caught me out before we started recording, before by telling me that you were originally born about 10 miles away from where I was, I was born myself in Manchester, <laughs> so in Withinshaw, interesting enough. And so, tell us, obviously, about your journey as a writer, then, and where do, where have you lived then, apart from just Withinshaw? Before we start, then,
2: I've had quite um lived in quite a few places, my parents when I was about um, 11 or 12, uh, entered the pub trade. So I've lived in various pubs in various parts of many of the Midlands, um, in uh, Smethwick, in Southern Coalfield. Um, and I've also, when my parents moved to a pub in Hinkley in Leicestershire, uh, I stopped in Birmingham and um, uh, lived in various sits for a while until I went to university as a mature student. I've written all my life. I've written all my life.
0: Brilliant. Now, obviously, like, people are wondering as well, obviously, why we've got this link for Scotland today as well, because you're actually living, aren't you, in Scotland nowadays? And it's not a very Scottish accent. No. No, <laughs> <laughs> That's why. But tell people, tell people, obviously, where you've lived in Scotland and where you're living now, OK? Well, that would be nice um, as well to understand.
2: Well, we, we moved in 1999 when me and my husband uh, moved to... <laughs> Scotland to to the Highlands, a small village called Durness uh, in the northwest tip, um, to open a bookshop and restaurant. Um, I gave up my job working uh, for social services, um, and he gave up his job as a a churchman and vicar, and at a bookshop and restaurant, which we ran for about 15 years, then really enjoyed living in Durness. But... For health reasons, I needed to be near, nearer to facilities, so we closed the business, sold the property and uh, moved to a small town in Caithness, again in the far north, um, called Caldwick, which is the nearest town to to John Groat's. Um, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere other than in Scotland.
0: <laughs> fair, fair play mate. Now, I know, obviously, in relation to your writing, though, geez, you know, you've been writing all your life, really. So, tell us, obviously, where your writing originally came from. Then. Was it were you, were you one of these sort of young child writers, then, were you? I
2: wrote as soon as I, I could, I learned to read, I read. And I, wherever I go, I've got a book with me. And if if, uh, if you had a camera that could span around the room, they, uh, every wall's got bookcases on it, so there's books on the floor. And it just seemed a natural natural progression because as soon as I could learn to as soon as I learned to write as well I began writing poems. And I just I don't know where it came from um, but I just loved reading and I loved writing. Um, And although my parents weren't um, uh, writers themselves um, they encouraged me. And for my 18th birthday they bought me a typewriter
0: oh fantastic wonderful brilliant oh yeah that i have i when i first started writing because i'm nearly 50 now i I was actually typing on typewriters myself when i was at school and you look back at it now and i'm sure the pet both of you must agree with this it's so much easier nowadays been on the computer (laughs) for writing it, well even I started with a
3: typewriter as well, oh, actually, did it? believe it or oh, not. Wow. Yes, and I'm only 30. It was the first thing <laughs> my parents <laughs> sort of got out the loft and I was there tip-tapping away on it.
2: Oh I'm I'm, I'm 17, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, you're right, it's much easier with a computer um and a word processor. You're not gonna body bother, bother with um, carbon paper or tip X. Oh. oh yeah. Oh the tip
0: extra mover I always remember the most, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, the sorry.
2: smell. The smell. Yeah. Oh, the only smell. I was <laughs> um but it has been said said that computers aren't as romantic as typewriters, are they? Oh
0: no. No,
2: no. <laughs> hmm.
3: Yeah, I, I can see that. There's a there's a process to be had with the typewriter, isn't there?
1: You're engaged
0: <laughs> more. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it makes you more disciplined as a writer because, like, yeah, if you make a mistake on it, you've got twice as much problems trying to sort it out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, completely agree with you. Now, obviously, Kevin, I'm. There's plenty I can ask you about here today about your writing, but and I know you've you massively organised. Been involved in all you've read at all kinds of places, and obviously, like you said, in festivals as well. I know you've worked collaboratively with visual artists and musicians, and I know you've also been the editor of the Highland LGBT magazine, Undividing Lines. Now, I want to ask you about that in a minute, but the one that struck, caught my attention straight when I read your bio was you've read that you've read your work at the Scottish Parliament. So, mm-hmm. tell us about that. I'm very interested in learning about that experience.
2: Right. What it was, it was the launch of the anthology Disclosures, which was um, published by HIV Scotland, combined poetry, stories, fiction and nonfiction around HIV and AIDS. And it was launched uh, on World AIDS Day. And it was launched at the Scottish Parliament. And I was one of the people who was there who was reading an extract from my story. And it was a great experience. It's a wonderful building, the Scottish Parliament. It really is. Uh, it's, um, and it was, th- th- there were even some MSPs there in the audience, which was, which was really, r- r- really excellent. Um, and then a f- bit later, a few months later, it was also at, at a second launch. It's uh, the big Glasgow Book Festival, which is called I Write. <laughs> I write Festival, it was launched there as well. So, yeah. Oh, brilliant brilliant stuff many many years ago back in the very early 70s i was uh, on bbc2 uh reading um poetry i was part of a group at the time called the birmingham uh, uh the birmingham poetry group and and uh, we got a spot, a programme on BBC Two, a late-night programme that nobody ever watches, you know, but, but it, was, it was still good fun. And it went out live, and I read a poem, at the time I'd, I'd been working in a foundry, I read a poem about a strike in the foundry, and that was uh, that was a really interesting experience. And it was the idea of that was that just ordinary working people, the idea was to show that poetry wasn't anything high-polluting or necessarily intellectual, That's a factory worker, a teacher, a housewife, a bricklayer, uh, could all read and write poetry,
0: and that—that and, and that was what the program was about. And that was great fun. That's how bad it was, indeed. You look—you, with you it's, been obviously writing and performing so long now, Kevin? You must have seen the way society's changed in relation to creativity, such as this, over the years. Do you think it's? The creativity now is more, I think it's much more accessible, isn't it? You can find things more easily now with, with the birth of the internet, I guess. Yes. Um, being creative, whether
2: it's in literature or in music or in painting or whatever, it's easier to access what you need to be creative. Um, and I think, I think that's absolutely great. But there are still barriers. One of the things that really interests me uh, is the way that so much literature, particularly literature published by the major publishers, uh, the stuff that's um, that you see uh, promoted in the shops and on Amazon, um, so much of it is from a very narrow perspective: middle class, white, predominantly heterosexual. And despite the number of women writers, the number of women who work in publishing, uh, literature is still male-dominated. Working-class writers, there was research done last year uh, showing that working-class writers find it much harder to to get their work published. And when they do get it published, it's quite often seen as being not mainstream. The same with uh, a lot of uh, gay writing and a lot of black writing. Um, so I'm very keen on the notion of not just being accessible in terms of computers and access to information and research being easier, but accessible in terms of making sure there's a level playing field, regardless of the ethnicity or the sexuality or the class or the gender of the of, 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 of the writers. Um, but I think that's beginning to change now. Uh, yeah, no, I agree, I agree oh, with For instance, with the Booker Prize. Um, uh, last year's winner uh, it was a gay working class novel. The year before it was um, uh, Girl, Woman, Other um, by, by one of the country's leading uh, leading um, black writers. Um, so things are beginning to, and the year before that it was um, Milkman, um, by Anna Burns, about a, a working-class Catholic estate in Northern Ireland. Uh, so things are beginning to change
0: slowly. But, good. but yes. Yeah. Good. Now, good. before we before we come on to talk about your book, which we're here to talk about today, obviously, I think it's a good time, obviously, to talk about um, your magazine, obviously, um, Undividing Lines, because I think it's very appropriate the way this conversation's gone. So let's talk a bit about this magazine, then, next, if you can, please. Right, it was started
2: started about eight years ago um, by uh, a man in the Highlands, a gay man in the Highlands, um, David Downing. Um, He'd spoken to me and to a few other people and he he decided he was going to set up this magazine, but he wanted to make sure that it was beholden to no one. So um, there's no advertising, uh, there's no funding from either private or uh, statutory sources um, and it's available free on the internet. And we don't do print editions it's just online digitally, but people can obviously print print off um, of copies if they want to and I had to go with the editorship three issues ago because uh, David wanted to wanted to retire and with some trepidation I took over at being editor. I had no issues around the editing process itself, but I also had to do all the technical stuff on the internet uh in terms of setting it up and everything else and 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 that is still a nightmare but uh, i'm learning how to use all those different functions on the internet i think it's a real addition uh to to uh, to, to, uh, to to scotland because it prints fiction it prints poetry uh it has book reviews uh it has film reviews music reviews Uh, It has articles on political issues, on historical issues, on folk music, on all sorts of things. And in the forthcoming edition, which are due out in October, um, it's uh, going to feature not just English, but Scots, Scottish Gaelic and Polari. Now, are you familiar with what Polari is?
0: vaguely, Have you heard of it, Nick? I haven't, but I'm keen to learn more. The same, right. the same. <laughs> it's the language, the secret language
2: that gay men had before uh, male homosexuality was decriminalised. The oh. language they had oh. were about oh, oh, yeah. without any police or parkers uh, okay. knowing what they were talking about. Um, and uh, if you're familiar with um, Kenneth Williams on... I knew you were going to say that. Round the horn, yes, yeah. Down yep. the yes.
3: <laughs> Julian Sandy, uh, Julian and Sandy, right? That's the one, yes.
2: That's yes, the one. yes. <laughs> so there's also going to be poetry and Polari in Polari the, in the next issue as well. Um, and, and that I find really exciting. And what I really would like to do in the future is because there's now so many people from different parts of Europe and different parts of Asia who live in the highlands. It'd be great if we could have work in there. In Polish, in Ukrainian, in Punjabi, you know, obviously with English translations by the sides, so people knew New York was, what was being written. Um, I'd really like to see as many languages as possible featured in in the in the magazine,
0: from, from as many different cultures as possible. Brilliant. We're good luck with it, definitely, with that. So, we'll make sure I'll get the links off you later on for that one. So, i are going to put it in the write up, definitely. And I think it sounds a fantastic magazine to submit to everybody that, straight away. Now, we're here in a very roundabout way. We got here eventually to talk about your debut short story collection that came up last year on the fantastic, yes. obviously, Flying the Wall Press No Home in This World. Now, this is a fantastic book. It really, really is. I reviewed this on my book read podcast last year, reading and pending it the best. Books I read last year, definitely. No arguments on that one. Now, the book itself, people obviously wonder. We'll let Kevin come on to this in a moment. It's actually made up of six short stories, which only titles up to, and I'm trying to read the number page at the minute, but the light's not very really good today. it. It's under 70. Obviously, Kevin, first of all, tell us about the birth of this collection. I know it's been going down go for a while, hasn't it? Tell us about this, tell us where this came from then. Well, it's worth saying that. A- when I'm 70, I and mean, my
2: first collection was published when I was 69, which is a long time to be writing. Um, <laughs> well, I, 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 I had stuff published in magazines and worked with musicians and stuff and artists. Um, but for so long, I was concentrating on poetry, because poetry has always been my first love. Um, and I'm pretty stubborn. Um, and I was determined I was going to be a good poet. It took me about 60 years of life to realise that I was only going to be more than a sort of um, mediocre, an average poet, good, but just an average poet. Um, So then I started concentrating on prose, and it was then that I started to get more and more stuff uh, actually, actually published and accepted. And I've always liked short, well, I've always liked fiction, I've always liked short stories, I just found that ideas were coming and I'd work at them. And whenever I set a a story off and it was rejected, when it came back, I'd work some more on it because I'd say, well, there must be a reason why that magazine or that editor rejected that story. So I'd work on it to try and make it better. And I think every single story in this collection has been worked on and gone through draft after draft after draft uh, in order to make it as good as I can possibly make it. And even now, after the story has been published, I, I can still see bits of, of different stories where I said, well, I'd like to change that bit. <laughs> but obviously it's too late once it's out in the, <laughs> in, in the world. But I just like writing. I've written all my life, but once I retired, I was then able to spend every day writing. Every weekday, certainly, I spend some time sat at the computer writing out words. It might be short stories, it might be book reviews, it might be editing stuff for dividing lines, it might be all sorts of things, but, but I work at, uh, at words every, every weekday and quite often at weekends as well. So it's, it's just enjoyable. And, and these stories, they deal with themes that uh, particularly interest me. Uh, one of them, the one set in Coventry, uh, Moonlight Sonata, I lived in Coventry for a while. In fact, I went to university uh, in U- Warwick University, which is actually in Coventry, not Warwick. I got really interested in the cathedral. I got really interested in the awful bombing that Coventry Co- that happened in Coventry. And as I do quite often, I just thought, "Well, what if? What if?" Most of my stories start off by me asking the question, "What if?" Um, and that's how that story came about, about set during the bombing and, and the aftermath of the bombing. I will the give away the, the, the plot. Um, but, uh, uh, the one, um, No Smoke Without Fire. Now, what's always interested me, actually always appalled me, is the way that for certain crimes, an accusation is often treated as if it's the very accusation implies guilt. I'm a strong believer in being innocent until proven guilty. That story came out of that. Uh, It came out of, it also came out of uh, what I've seen about miscarriages of justice in various parts of the the country over the years. Um, uh, It's actually been through, that one went through lots and lots of transformations before it came out in the form it did. The The title story, No Home in This World, That, again, came from a particular concern of mine. The way we treat refugees in this country is absolutely appalling. And even now with what's happening in Afghanistan, there's some absolutely appalling instances of people uh, not being allowed to get on planes to go to a safe country. But the situation is even worse for a lot of gay people, a lot of gay refugees. Because until recently, it was quite common for lesbian or gay refugees to be sent back to their country of origin, even if homosexuality was illegal there. And there's one appalling case a few years ago where um, where a gay man from Afghanistan was sent back to Afghanistan. And the Home Office said to him, you don't look gay. So, reviling and stopping Kabul, and map straight, you'll be okay. What? And so I, I just thought, well, write a story about a, a gay, gay refugee. Um, and the, the title of the story and of the collection actually comes from a Woody Guthrie song. I mean, I, as you know, from the text of Taking Condoms, I, I, love a, I love American music, <laughs> country music, and Woody Guthrie was a great folk singer who also inspired Bob Dylan, another mm-hmm. one of my heroes here? wrote a song called uh, Ain't Got No Home In This World Anymore. Uh, he used his <laughs> wonderful song and it, it, it took the melody actually from, from an old gospel song. You know, uh, most of what he got his melodies came from, came from elsewhere. And I just thought, well, that's a great title. Ain't Got No Home. So, no home in this world. The first story in the collection, that's changed so much over the years originally uh it was two gay men well that didn't work for obvious reasons if you the story it just didn't work for obvious reasons and originally it was written in two different voices and that was really messy so i think the first draft was written about 10 years ago and over the years i honed it down changed the genders of the characters um changed the voices and then it came out uh, there was my rating, it came out in in, in in the way it did. That, that just shows the way that stories can develop over time. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I agree, I agree completely with that. Because there's so much depth in stories. It's clearly something, you can see A writers sometimes, debut collector you feel like they've got a the collection together in six months. You can tell your book, it's took ages, I can see that a mile off the depth of it. Now, the piece that's going to be recorded today, where Nick's here today, is obviously going to be the finale piece, Texan condoms. Now, I want to know more about this. But Nick, is there anything as you're going to your be narrating this in the second half? Is there anything you want to persist, specifically ask Kevin about this story?
3: There's, there's a lot I want to ask. First of all, just just briefly, it, it's a pleasure to read it. Absolutely, I think the, I think the thing that I wanted to ask most when I first read this was what song were you listening to out of your favorite collection whilst you wrote this were you listening to a song specifically i felt like there were parts where you were i mean without spoiling too much you you mention your love of uh country and folk music as a, am i a big fan but there are particular passages where i feel the the, the rhythm of the uh, of a song um and I wanted to know what that might have been.
2: I
0: always listen to music when I'm writing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: In fact, it shows. It shows with this book. It does. Because there's, there's at least one of them I saw. I saw a jazz track getting played in it. And I think you're right with this one, Nick. I agree with you completely. This felt perhaps some quiet, I don't know. There was, there was a mood in it, but it definitely had music. Yeah. So.
2: Absolutely. The, the song about looking back was mentioned that was uh, sung by Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. Hmm. Uh, it's just called "Looking Back Texas, and its refrain is, let's get back to looking Back Texas, back to the basics of love. And Wendell Jennings also wrote one of my favourite country songs, which has the refrain, I've always been crazy, but it's kept me from going insane. Willie Nelson, another one of my favourites, is, is one of his songs that is always in, in, in my head, A song called We Don't Run. And I actually used, used when I used to... Uh, when I was an HIV and AIDS worker uh, yeah. in the nineties, the I also did some um, lesbian and gay and bisexual awareness sessions. I used to quote the chorus of We Don't Run in those sessions. And the chorus goes, we don't run, we don't compromise. Sorry, we don't run, uh, we don't compromise, we never do. We look for love and find it in the eyes, the eyes of me. And the eyes of you, you know, um, as probably those sorts of songs that were going, going through my head, you know. But, uh, mm. but yes, I, I love the music, and I was actually in America in nineteen seventy-nine. I oh. wondered if you were. I really, I, really wondered if you were.
0: Yeah, I've got I, to say, Nick, see that I, shows how great in-depth investigative reporting does that because we let it. We got it out of it, didn't we?
3: <laughs> well, well, absolutely, and and there were there were real parts of me teetering on the edge of how autobiographical might this be might it not be but I wanted to I wanted to sort of leave the mystery in my in my head um, well,
2: after I finished university in, in 1979 before uh, doing anything else I went to the states and I spent most of the time in the south again because I just loved the music and uh, hmm. I was I spent time in some of the roughest not roughest in terms of um people were roughest in terms of uh, of the countryside areas, like the Everglades in Florida yes. and the Arizona desert, things like that, and I particularly love I particularly love the Texas hill country. Oh. Also, also love the Yosemite National Park in the, in in in, uh, in California. But there's something special about the South, and I did go to and back, and uh, I was asked if I to go on a rattlesnake hunt. And I did the light
0: <laughs> wow,
2: and I did get very drunk and very stoned there.
0: <laughs> good man, good man, of course. That's brilliant. Of course, Spoker Label can't obviously officially can't praise that, but I'll say to you, you sound like you had a good time. <laughs> and, and basically, I suppose the, the
2: experiences just stopped with me. And I, I just in the 1980s and early 1990s, I did lose friends through HIV and AIDS. And, again, if I'm honest, like most gay men prior to the mid-80s, before we realised there was a problem with sex, um, I wasn't necessarily careful. And it just struck me that I was really, really lucky. I had friends who got HIV, I had friends who died, and I escaped. And it just struck me that it's, it's just how the cards fell. Right? Yeah. yeah. I was lucky. Some of my friends weren't lucky, mm. right? No blame attached. People aren't, and the whole notion of blaming people for their illness is, is so abhorrent to me. Yes, w- yes. W- whether it's blaming smokers for, for, for getting cancer or blaming fat people like me, because I'm, I'm quite fat, uh, heart disease or diabetes or, or whether it's blaming a gay man for, for getting HIV, you know, it's mm. it's. It's just whether we get these illnesses is in most cases just a matter of good fortune. And as Phil Oak sang in his, in his song, The App of a Fortune Goes You Are I, you know, you know? Um, and uh, I was just lucky. And I spent most of, well, I spent all the 90s, 1990s working in HIV, the field of HIV and AIDS. And I spent quite a lot of the 80s as a volunteer working for various organisations. And the amount of... At that time, the amount of hate—hatred is too strong a word—but but the amount of sort of dislike there was, of worries there was from people who didn't know didn't know any better about HIV and AIDS mm. um, was actually quite frightening at times. And I think most gay men at that time who were out had had experiences of um, of abuse or violence or one thing or another, you know. So I thought, well. And I I did have a friend who died um, and who told me that he thought he got it in Castro in San Francisco. Uh. Right? Um, So I just thought, well, use my knowledge of of America at that time and use the notion of the idea of of it being a lottery, whether uh, we get ill or don't get ill. Mm. And if we get ill, whether we live or die use that as a way of, 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 te- of, te- of telling a story
0: yeah it's a powerful powerful story i'm looking forward to hearing what nick's going to do with it in the second half definitely right so <laughs> <laughs> that one so anyway kevin we're coming, going to start slowly wrapping up now so uh, to conclude that i always do with spoken label sessions i always like to ask the writer what have we got coming up next so, obviously, your first book came out with Fly and the War Press last year. So, do you have any ideas for a possible second collection coming up yet? all? I'm currently working on a novel which
2: I won't say much about because, uh, but I'm also working on, as well as just random short stories, I've started work on a collection of short stories that's got a theme attached to it. A while ago, I had a short story published in a Highland magazine called The Ha. The short story was called Goldilocks, um, and it's one of my very, very rare uh, um, attempts at writing science fiction. Um, wow! And I don't know whether you, whether you know, but but um, uh, astronomers use the term Goldilocks to refer to a par- to a planet that's just right for human life, not too hot, not too cold. You know, like 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 the, like the fairy tale. And I'd written this story about this, <clears throat> this woman who had been part of a, of a group of people who had landed on this planet that they named Goldilocks because it, it was just, just right human life, having left the Earth because the Earth was, was, had been destroyed or was destroying, being destroyed, and generations had lived on the spaceship. And the story begins with her on the planet Goldilocks. And the theme of the story is because she spent all her life in a closed space, she's got agoraphobia and she won't leave the ship. I'm bringing the theme of the bears, right? In that agoraphobia is expressed by uh, having hallucinations of bears being everywhere, right? Um, and I was saying to a friend of mine, you know, that there were so many other issues I could have raised, like um, what's through the life on this planet, what's happened to the life, and all the issues around sort of, on this planet around things like colonialism and uh, and that sort of thing and he said to me oh why don't you write a series of short stories each one exploring a different issue and i thought yes yes i thought that's brilliant so i'm now planning to write a series of short stories that take place on goldilocks in different generations as as the as the colony progresses that will bring in the ecological issues bring in the colonial issues and that sort of thing um and uh so that that's a, is one thing I'm planning
0: to do. Yes. Good luck with it, definitely. And that sounds that's not a great idea. Sure. i love look forward to reading it definitely on that one. So okay, Kevin. If people you want people to find out more about you, obviously your book can you be picked up in all the usual places, but mm-hmm. I know that already because I've researched already. But if people want to get in contact with you or find out more about you, where are the best going? The only social media thing i got is, is Facebook. <clears throat> I don't do
2: Twitter. I don't do... Um, in fact, I can't even remember what the other ones are called. Um. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> but I do do Facebook, and uh, my Facebook page is normally full of the most awful
0: puns. Plus, the physical posts and one thing. Uh, I've just, I've just been on it before, and I was groaning as well. <laughs> 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 Yeah, that's. I've got. I've got I've met a friend of mine that's um, a fantastic punner, and you, you put him to shame, Kevin. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's probably the best way of people contacting me or through the mag- the magazine on dividing lines you know uh, because really? again they could they can they can, uh, they can contact me uh, me, me, th- me through that the email address for the magazine is at lines at mail.com brilliant right. brilliant okay. I'd rather not give you my personal email address, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, best not.
0: Best but, not, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: I agree. Or, 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 or you know, you'll, uh, you'll be, able, be able to contact me. Um, and I'm on Facebook most days. Great and,
0: stuff. That's when Wayne on holiday. <laughs> of course, of course. I don't do when I'm on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, dokie, Kevin. Thanks for that, mate. Now, we're going to, obviously, take a quick break, and then Nick's going to come back and read out for us. Texan condom, which I'm looking forward to hearing from what he's been saying before about this. So thank you again to get guys. See you all in a minute. And thank you for, uh, for interviewing me. It's been, it's been great fun. It's been brilliant. And thank you as well, Nick, for attending today as well. You've added a lot to it as well, I've got to say, right? So, It's been a pleasure. Spoken oh. Labour. Oh. Hi, hey guys. Still here with Kevin. Now, we're doing something a bit different now, because obviously the second part of Spoken Labour is always the writer reading up one of his pieces. This is not the case today, Kevin, is it? No, no. uh, We've got an actor to read
2: one of the stories from my collection. Uh, Nicholas Newman has kindly agreed to uh, read the last story in the collection, which is called uh, Texan Condoms.
0: Over to you, Nick.
3: Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, Hello, my uh, name is Nick. I have been an actor for actor director for the past uh 10 years um i uh started in community theater and uh have a particular interest in uh audio and uh text work such as this um it's a it's a privilege to be here and to read this uh on behalf of uh kevin and everybody else um I'm very grateful for the opportunity, certainly. Without further ado, shall I begin? Texas Condoms
1: by Kevin Crow. 2017.
3: Yet another World AIDS Day service. Yet another day reflecting on all those whose lives have been cut short because of a virus no one knew existed. While their bodies were being damaged by cancers and infections, they had no way of resisting. They were being told that they had brought it upon themselves by their irresponsible behaviour. They were blamed for an excess of love. They were condemned as a danger to others. Times have changed. The virus and its effects can now be treated. We can now love without being judged. We can marry, but as I sit next to my husband and my partner of over a quarter of a century, I am not immune from survivor guilt.
1: 1979,
3: the fierce Texan sun exacerbated my hangover. I drank as much water as I could manage, attempting to ease the discomfort in my dehydrated body. I packed my sleeping bag and tent and headed south along Highway 87. Wearing a hat and a long-sleeved shirt to protect my pale features from the sun, I thought about the previous night's excesses. I had no recollection of how I got back to the campsite, but I did remember the wonderful evening of outlaw music, Lone Star Beer and Sensi Miller Weed. Well, at least, I was told it was Sensi. It could have just been very strong grass. I dumped my stuff at the campsite, then headed the few miles to Luckenbach, arriving there mid-afternoon, sitting outside the bar drinking Lone Star beer and chewing on beef jerky. My accent attracted others, all wanting to know about me. None of them had ever met a brick before. They were amazed I'd found my way to this tiny hamlet in the middle of nowhere. One gnarled, weather-beaten redneck invited me on a rattlesnake hunt. We gas their nests. We only shoot them if we have to. (laughs) Shooting them destroys a skin, which means you can't sell them. We sell the venom to the hospitals for snakebite venom. And the body? Restaurants. It's fun.
1: I politely declined. Someone else asked, Hey man, why not stay for the dance tonight?
3: He spoke in that low, hazy, sexy Texan drawl, where each word seems to take a minute and each sentence an eternity. I looked up at this giant of a man with long brown hair, unkempt beard and a t-shirt with Cosmic Cowboy, On the front and Willie Nelson for president on the back. I did stay for the dance. Lots of loud country music from Waylon and the Willie wannabes, Lone Star, Bourbon and Weed. I made many friends, all of whose names I'd forgotten by the morning. I do remember singing along to Willie Nelson's I Gotta Get Drunk at the top of my voice. Already the sun was creating a haze of the distance, and despite the hat and long sleeves, I could feel my skin beginning to burn. I took another long swig of water and stuck my thumb out at a passing car. It pulled up. The driver wound down his window and asked, ''Where are you headed, son?'' ''San Antonio.'' ''You're in luck. Dump your stuff in the back.'' The first thing I noticed was how cool the car was inside. Although I'd been travelling around the States for a while now, I hadn't got used to air conditioning. On this occasion, after the oppressive heat of the Texas summer, I was glad of the coolness. I'd always had this image of Americans, and particularly Texans, driving large, gas-guzzling cars at high speed. The gas guzzling bit was probably still correct, judging by the size of the car, which he told me was a Buick. But President Carter had recently introduced a national 55 mile an hour speed limit, and it was strictly enforced. So we cruised along at a much more sedate speed than I had expected from the other side of the pond while the radio played Texan country. Well, son, what brings a Brit all the way to Texas? Another low, hazy Texan drawl. I'm just spending a few months traveling around America, mainly in the South. Ever since I was a boy, i would wanted to come to Texas. Ever since watching John Wayne films. And I love the music. Waylon, Willie, Guy Clark, Bob Willis could listen to them all day. Wow, man. Didn't know our music was popular over there. Good to know. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's really popular. There are country music festivals and, and lots of clubs. I looked at
1: the driver. A smile was playing across his face.
3: What do you think now you're here? Well, Texas is certainly big. And I wasn't expecting all this. I waved at the lush hill country scenery. I didn't realise there was all this greenery. I love the sight of those hills covered in blue flowers. Yeah, it's beautiful. But you have to be careful where you put your feet. I nodded. I told him about a walk I'd taken near a stream and how much I was enjoying it until... A rattlesnake blocked my path. I was very careful and very, very slowly backed away and returned to the road. He laughed. (laughs) It's a wise move. Without taking his eyes off the road, he stuck out his hand.
1: I'm Hank. I shook his hand and I told him my name was Sean, adding a good old Irish name. Though, I wasn't born there.
3: Well, nice to meet you, Sean. After a short silence, while I looked at the passing scenery, he asked, "So, uh, what's been your favourite bits of Texas so far?" Oh, Austin was special, particularly the uh, World Armadillo headquarters, and and yesterday I was at Lockemback. Truly, truly memorable. Except I. Uh, I can't remember much thanks to all the beer. (laughs) Hank Gafford. (laughs) Yeah, I spent time looking back. I bet it wasn't just beer. At that moment, the Waylon Jennings song about the hamlet came over the airways. We both sang along to the radio. As the song faded out, we were both grinning.
1: That was good, I said. He nodded. Sure was. He
3: turned to me, taking his eyes off the road for just a moment, and asked, Hey, back home, you, uh, you got a girlfriend? Oh, nothing special, I replied. Hey, I would have thought a good-looking dude like you would have had the girls running after him. I laughed. <laughs> me good good looking um you must be joking. <laughs> no, not at all. I really think you're good looking. well, yeah the uh the girls don't think so. Not that I'm bothered to tell you the truth it's it's a
1: bit of a relief now, why
3: would that be? I um shrugged my shoulders. I wasn't about to say anything else. It was still illegal in Texas. I felt his hand rest on my knee and gradually move to my thigh. I could feel myself getting aroused. I reckon I know why you ain't interested in girls. He moved his hand back to the steering wheel. What are your plans when you get to San Antonio? He asked. "I, I, I don't really know. I replied, look for a campsite or cheap motel for a couple of nights, um, then head out west. Hey, stop at my place for a while. If you like. I wasn't sure. I was excited by the thought of spending time with a a real Texan. Perhaps even a, a cowboy or a rodeo rider. But there were so many stories of people being picked up and then hurt or even murdered. I knew nothing about Hank. Even his name could have been false. But he knew nothing about me either, and I felt nauseous with desire. Such was my reverie. I didn't notice that buildings had replaced the countryside until we pulled up outside a condominium block. Here we are,
1: Hank said. Home. At least, my home.
3: I followed him along the manicured lawn and past the flower beds to his apartment, though apartment didn't seem to do justice to its opulence. I followed him along the manicured lawn and past the flower beds to his apartment, though apartment didn't do justice to its opulence. Oil paintings on some walls. Bookshelves on others, a crimson carpet with piles so thick you could lose yourself. A state-of-the-art hi-fi system, leather sofas, and off to the side, a kitchenette. Everything was spotless and in its place. Until he put some music on, the only sound was the humming of the air conditioning. Wow, I said, pirouetting around. Wow, this is... this is wonderful! I'm glad you like it, but I ain't no realtor. I didn't bring you here to sell you the place. He bent his finger in the universal sign for, follow me. Sitting next to him in the car, I hadn't realized just how big he was. Over six feet with bulging muscles covering his arms and upper body. He towered over my five feet pale and weedy body. I followed him into the bedroom, which was even more opulent than the lounge. There were mirrors on the wall and on the ceiling above the large, emperor-sized bed. From a fridge in the corner, he produced a bottle of bourbon and filled two glasses, passing one to me. I took a sip of the smoky liquid, my hand shaking as I lifted the glass to my mouth.
1: Nervous? he asked.
3: My heart was racing but I managed to shake my head no just um just he ended my struggle for the right words by kissing me deep and long I felt so puny compared to him and wondered what it was about me that attracted him we made love exploring every crevice of each other's bodies afterwards we collapsed breathless and sweating arms around each other. I must have dozed off because the next thing I remember was Hank kissing me and passing me another bourbon. That was wonderful, he said. Yeah, I grinned, slightly embarrassed. I took a sip of the drink and then said, I hope you don't mind me asking, but... Why did you use a condom? I mean, you can't get me pregnant. They don't just start pregnancy. He was silent for a moment, then continued. Recently, there has been an increase in fags getting Hep B. I must have looked puzzled. Hepatitis B, it's it's a liver disease. It can be spread by sex. A lot of people don't know anything about it, or how to protect themselves until it's too late. He hesitated, then continued. I ain't saying you you got it, and I ain't saying I got it. It's just a precaution.
1: You don't mind, do you?
3: I giggled. (laughs) If you fuck like that, you can wear a whole box full. He grabbed me and we made love again. I stopped with him for four weeks. He showed me around San Antonio, the wonderful river walk, the Alamo, the restaurants, where I developed a taste for tacos and enchiladas, the art galleries, the nightlife. One night he took me to a gay club, though being Texas, it couldn't be advertised as such where he introduced me to lots of people. Everyone referred to him as Rubber Man. And there was some good-natured banter at his expense. One camp mincing queen told me he'd take me back home with him so I could experience real Texan sodomy, skin against skin. I declined. I was perfectly content with Hank. Eventually, the time came when I had to leave. Before returning across the pond, I wanted to spend time in the desert and in the Sierras. I'd stopped with Hank so long, I'd already decided not to bother with the Castro area of San Francisco. After all, what could I find there that Hank couldn't, hadn't given me? Hank agreed it was probably time for me to leave. He was a freelance journalist, and he'd just got a commission for a job that would take him to Louisiana for some research. There were tears when we parted. He headed east, and I went west.
1: 1989.
3: Benjamin had come home to die. He had insisted. He had told the doctors he wanted to spend his last days in familiar and friendly surroundings. His treatment had come too late, and the side effects were so bad, they had taken him off the drugs. He had lost so much weight. We could see his bones, and he lacked the strength to walk unaided. His body was covered in cancerous lesions, some looking like small red boils, others with the appearance of those large purple bruises we sometimes get when we bash our hand against a hard surface. He was incontinent. Because of his oral herpes, he couldn't chew food and could only swallow with difficulty. His carers, of which I was one, were continually wiping his dripping mouth, cleaning him, changing his continence pads, and moving him to avoid bed sores. We also rolled his joints. Cannabis was one of the few things that could relieve some of the pain. It also helped him sleep and stimulated his appetite. We would sit him up, liquidise his food and patiently feed him with teaspoons, small enough quantities for him to swallow. He'd had several bouts of pneumonia and eventually, when his immune system was no longer capable of resisting anything, one final attack led to his death. Just another AIDS statistic. I remember the conversation. We had when, just three years earlier, following some illnesses, he had tested positive for HIV antibodies and he was told that he had developed AIDS. We went out for a drink, spoke about this and that, neither of us seeming to want to mention the doctor's verdict. Partway through his third pint, he looked at me, smiling sadly. Partway through his third
1: pint, he looked at me, smiling sadly.
3: I think I know when I got this. I really do. He took another swig of his beer. I believe it was the summer of 1979, before anyone even knew about AIDS. After I'd finished at university, I'd spent a couple of months in San Francisco, stopping in Castro. Christ, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. The bars, the bathhouses, the steam rooms, the the saunas. More available men than I could handle in a life. And whatever you were into, no matter how weird, it was available. He was silent for a few moments, then said, at least I had fun, I
1: suppose. He finished his pint. I think I'd like to go home now. 2017.
3: As the final hymn begins, I take my husband's hand, aware that Benjamin would never know what that felt like. A lifelong gay activist and a secular Jew who had withstood both anti-Semitic and homophobic violence. Like Moses, he never saw the liberation he did so much to make possible. As we shuffle out of the church and fasten our coats against the cold winter wind, I hear Benjamin telling me the best way to remember him is to live our lives to the full and celebrate
1: our love. Absolutely beautifully read that
2: Nick, I've got to say that. I thought it was beautifully read, I really did. It really brought, brought the story to life. In fact, it sounded better than the story I originally wrote. <laughs> the way you read it was beautiful. Beautifully read that, Nick.
0: Oh, it's incredible. It really felt like it was a life back then to me. And oh, I, I'm just speechless. Really, I'm speechless. That tremendous Good. story you wrote there, Kevin. Beautifully read. song. right, guys, and girls, that's it for Spoken Label today. These two gentlemen need to chat to off mic anyway. But as Don Callis says of Impact Wrestling, stay safe and stay over, I will speak to you all next time. Take care, guys.
1: Spoken, mate.